The Bible reading is from Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, page 1184 of the Church Bibles. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So forgive me while I bring the step down. Thank you. It's very handy that there's this little step so you can see me a bit better. Well, thank you, Iona. Well, something that goes, often goes hand in hand with a life-saving station is a lighthouse. These two things are often found in exactly the same place, aren't they? The life-saving station sends the boats out into the water to rescue the maybe drowning people in the sea and to bring them back to the safety of the shore, while the lighthouse shines out as a beacon of light, warning the boats and the ships to stay clear of the rocks. Now we're in the middle of downtown Detroit and there is a lighthouse on the riverbank, on the riverwalk, where all the people walking in downtown Detroit will pass by. And it begs the question, what on earth is this lighthouse doing there on this riverbank in Detroit? Now that lighthouse is actually a replica of another one. Some uh, few miles away, in, uh, right on the banks of the Great Lake Huron in Michigan. And that lighthouse that it's a replica of was built in 1876, and for over a hundred years that big lighthouse would shine out over 16 miles across that Great Lake to warn the ships and boats passing by. And so they made a replica, a smaller version, and they put it in Detroit on the Riverwalk. And it's crazy because it looks really good. It has, looks like a functioning lighthouse. But here's the problem. It doesn't produce any light. It doesn't save anyone's life. It just looks good. And Jesus said to his followers, and he says to us today, if we're his followers, he says, you are the light of the world. Now that is a statement of fact. It's not something that you can drum up, oh, some days I'm feeling a bit shinier than others. He says you, to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And he says it, do you remember who he's speaking to? His uneducated, often failing, often bickering disciples who end up, frankly, deserting him, rejecting him, betraying him. He makes that extraordinary statement to them. You are the light of the world. It's a new reality 
that they have been born into by the power of God's Spirit. It's a new reality that they have that they can enjoy. But then Jesus says something else after he says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. He also says that it is possible, as ludicrous as it sounds, to not let anyone see the light of Christ in you. Listen to these words from Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town or city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And remember, being put on a stand is a very vulnerable place to be for a light. It's much easier staying hidden under a bowl, isn't it? Jesus goes on, he says, it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the fact that Jesus says, let your light shine, presupposes that some light doesn't, that some lights don't. And that is really shocking, isn't it? In other words, you can have all the marks of looking like a functional Christian, being like that lighthouse. We, you can have all the marks that we've looked at over the last three weeks. Do you remember? We've looked at Colossians chap, chapter 1, week 1. We looked at being reconciled with Christ. You can be forgiven, enjoy the relationship with God made possible through Jesus' death on the cross, believing and trusting that he died on your behalf, in your place, so that you can be brought back to God. You can have week two, all the marks of being a mature Christian, have that hope of glory, growing in faith. Week three, you could be committed to the body of Christ, united, loving, and serving one another. But the question is, does anyone know about it? Outside of these four walls, who can see the light of Christ in you? Have you hidden your light under a bowl? Are you a lighthouse, like in downtown Detroit, with no light? Or have you put your light on a stand for everyone to see? A lighthouse shining out. Notice the two qualities of a lighthouse's light. It's comforting light, but also it's warning light. And like any light, some people are going to be drawn to it, while others are going to keep their distance and maybe even feel offended by it. So this week, we're looking at our outward devotion, church as God intended it to be. And we're going to be spending time in Colossians chapter 4, these four verses, so keep your Bible open, page 1184. And the question I want us to ask today is how can we let our light shine for the world to see? So that we're not like that lighthouse in downtown Detroit, but instead like that one on Lake Huron, shining out for the world to see. How can we let our light shine? And before we start thinking about what evangelistic programs or coming along to the series on sharing our faith, which I would highly recommend you come along to, before we even start thinking about practical tips of how we go about sharing the light of Christ, there's something that God's more interested in. And the passage we're exploring together here today, I wonder if you notice Paul mentions three times something that it is at the heart of what it means to be church. Have a look down at verses 2 to 6 with me. 
I wonder if you can spot it. Three times Paul mentions something that he says is at the heart of what it means to be church. Prayer. Do you notice? Pray. Prayer. Verse 2, prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Verse 3, pray for us. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So if you like, this passage, these four verses we're looking at neatly divides into two sections. The first section we're looking at is speak to God about people. That's in response to our question, how can we let our light shine for the world to see? Paul says, let's get on our knees, speak to God about people. And that's loosely under verses four to, two to four, if you like to make notes. Speak to God about people. Let's look at the language that Paul uses to describe this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Another translation of that is continue steadfastly, persevere. I looked into the original because I love that word devotion. It's a very evocative term, isn't it? And the, in the original Greek, the word proskartereo means to be steadfastly attentive to, to give unremitting care to a thing, to persevere and not faint. And it's used 10 times that word in the New Testament, proskartero. And six of those times it's used in the book of Acts, which actually shouldn't come as a surprise to us as a mark of the early church. So speaking of the disciples after Jesus was taken up into heaven, before the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and prayer. Verse 46, a few verses later, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. There's this wholehearted commitment to one another in prayer in the Lord. There's a hunger, a desire. And it's not just an activity that we sign up for in prayer. Yes, we want to make the most of all the prayer meetings we've got, but it's a, a posture that we adopt and why do we pray? Well, as we behold the one that we are praying to, we become like him. Whatever we behold and spend time looking at, we become like them, don't we? As we seek his face, we become like him. Dick Lucas, in his commentary on Colossians, said this very sobering statement. It is in a prayerless church that the enemy can best do his work of disruption. And notice the language isn't just an individual exercise. It's not something we do on our own. Notice, devote yourselves to prayer. It's a collective command. We need one another, don't we? And the Lord Jesus, remember, he knows how difficult we find it is to pray. Uh, look at the two ways that our prayer life should be characterized. End of verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. I wonder what that reminds you of, reading the words watchful. Well, it reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was arrested and then tried, betrayed, and then um, sentenced to death, agonizing because he knows what's going to come on. He tells his disciples, watch and pray. He wants them to stay awake and pray with him because he's going through an, a time of great need. And why does he say that? Well, I wonder if you notice what he says after. Watch and pray. This is from Matthew 26, 
so that you will not fall into temptation. A watchful prayer is one that will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now, devotion uh, to anything uh, can quickly become a slave master, a slave driver, and we have to be careful of that. Um, I, I'm a kind of all-or-nothing type person. I tend to go... <laughs> I, I get, I get uh, criticised from my brothers particularly about this. You know, when I go sugar-free, it's completely everything, no sugar at all. Or when it's running, I've got to train for a marathon, and it's that, you know, it's not just a few jogs, I've got to do something. So I understand that there's a danger. We can, we can make things a god in themselves, and we to, we're to be aware of that. But sometimes spiritual discipline, well, often spiritual discipline requires great effort and sacrifice. And one of my great heroes of the faith is a chap called Charles Simeon, who's a great 18th century preacher. Actually, I attended his church where he was a preacher in Cambridge, but obviously few centuries later um, and he used to find it incredibly difficult as we often do to get up early to read the Bible and to pray especially in the winter months and so if he overslept what he resolved to do was he would pay a fine of half a crown to his bedmaker, who was his college servant when he was living um, teaching in, a, in Cambridge College and a few days later, as he lay comfortably in his warm bed, he reflected that the good woman was poor and could probably do with half a crown. So to overcome such rationalization, he vowed that next time he would throw a guinea into the river if he overslept. And the story goes that he duly did that, but only once, because guineas were scarce. And this is the quote from his biographer, he could not afford to use them to pave the riverbed with gold. <laughs> now, I love Charles Simeon's devotion. I think we in the 21st century need to take heed and learn from his zeal and commitment to getting up early, reading our Bibles and praying. But Paul helpfully gives us a little crib of how we go about this prayer and three things we notice here. We've said them already pray with others it's not an individual exercise find others that will help you get up to pray pray with be watchful that's the second thing in other words not just helping each other to wake up in the morning and so that we dedicate our days to the lord but there's a spiritual battle going on and we need to keep alert and awake spiritually gather yourself around people who don't just look at what's going on um, kind of in the physical realm, but what's going on in the spiritual realms. Keep watchful and be thankful. Praise fuels our prayer, and it protects our hearts from the grip of self-centeredness, and it combats grumbling. Lucas, Dick Lucas again, he says, if we want to be persevering prayers, devoted to prayer, he says, praise is the best and necessary companion of the prayer that perseveres. Remember, whatever we behold, whoever we behold and we praise, we become like. Now, what does Paul specifically ask them to pray for? So we are to be devoted, we're to be watchful, not praying on our own, be thankful, overflowing with joy. What does Paul ask them specifically to pray for if we're to let our light shine for Christ? Well, look at the end of verse 3. Where is Paul? Notice where he is. I am in chains. He's in prison while writing this letter. Now, does he ask these Colossian Christians to pray for a swift and speedy release from prison, as would be 
truly justified? No, look at verse 3 with me. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. He doesn't ask for a swift and speedy release, although he does ask in verse 18 at the end of the chapter to remember his chains. He is human after all. Remember my chains, he says. But his overarching desire is that the message of Christ would ring out loud and clear. And that's what he's asking them to pray for, that God would open a door. So specifically, he asked them to pray, God, would you open a door for your message to come out? Can being in prison stop the message of Christ going out? Can being housebound or out of work or having a high-pressure job or many mouths to feed or being chronically ill or being in a hostile environment or being married to someone who hates your faith, can any of that prevent the message of God's message of life and hope and love and forgiveness going out? Well, the resounding answer is no. Remember Paul's letter to Timothy again when he was in chains in prison. He says at the end of his letter, God's word is not chained. Would that we believe that, friends. Would that we believe that God's message is not chained. So often we feel chained by circumstances in our lives. We feel we're not up to it. We're not up to sharing the message of God's word, but God's word is not chained. He isn't bound like we are. So let's pray for two things, that God would open a door, verse three and verse four. Why? Verse four, pray that I may proclaim it, that's the mystery of Christ, clearly as I should. Do you notice what God's role is and what our response is? Do we do the opening of the door? Do we kick that door open and talk about Christ at any cost? No, God is the one who opens the doors. And what's our response? That we proclaim the mystery of Christ. And we need help to proclaim this mystery. That's what Paul, the great apostle Paul asked for prayer to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And it does require clear communication. People aren't gonna guess what the gospel is. You have to tell them but it is also a mystery. And you remember a few chapters earlier, Colossians 1.27, David Munns preached on this a few weeks ago. God is the one who has chosen to make known the riches of this mystery. God is the one who makes the mystery known. We proclaim it and he makes it known. And do you remember how this is all brought about? All the groundwork that's laid is through prayer. Pray, pray, pray three times it's mentioned if you like peas you like mnemonics here's a helpful one we pray for an opening we proclaim it's not a mnemonic actually i'm sorry about that it's three peas <laughs> we pray for an opening we proclaim and then we're prepared we're prepared so we remember those two headings we speak to god about people and the second heading second half of this little section verses five to six we speak to people about god how do we let our light shine for the world to see we speak to god about people pray for him to open the door and we speak to people about god let's look at verse five together be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders make the most of every opportunity 
The groundwork is prayer. But how we behave is really important. The world is watching us. I found being a Christian in the hockey club at university um, very difficult at times. Um, the initiation ceremonies where you were made to drink a certain number of rounds in different social events where we would dress up in pub gear and go around 18 holes, different pubs. That was part of being the hockey, in the hockey team. It was very difficult shining for Christ in that and, and frequent, not a few times, I had to say sorry to my hockey club teammates because I messed up. I drank too much. One of my friends said to me, what are you doing getting drunk? You're meant to be a Christian. And, uh, and I had to apologize and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I've let, I've let Jesus Christ down and I've let you down because I'm not living up to my faith. But there was one guy on the hockey, in the hockey club, there are three girls teams and three boys teams, who was affectionately known as Ginger Matted Hair Dave. He had ginger dreadlocks. He's called Dave. And I'd heard about him. He was a lovely chap and he was a great hockey player. And he used to frequently escort some of his male friends back to their college rooms when they had too much to drink and couldn't do it on their own. And he also happened to be a teetotaler, I heard. He didn't drink. And I wondered if he might be a Christian. So after one of the matches I was playing in, I spotted this chap with ginger matted hair, and I thought, that's Dave. So I went up to him, and I just introduced myself. And I noticed he was wearing a What Would Jesus Do bracelet around his wrist. And so I kind of fessed up and told them that I was a Christian too. And we gave each other this kind of secret Christian handshake. <laughs> and do um, and you know what? We, um, <laughs> there were all sorts of crazy things that went on in that hockey club. And at the annual Christmas dinner, I remember sitting opposite two chaps in the one of the men's hockey teams, who were drinking and drinking and drinking and saying, drink up, it'll be less painful if you do that. And I said, why, what's going on? They said, well, the, the third men's hockey team have to do, this is an annual thing, they have to run a naked lap of the athletics track at this Christmas dinner. And I thought, I know who's on the third men's hockey, ginger matted hair Dave, what's he gonna do? And I saw him down at the table and he was drinking his Coke. And he was having a great time laughing, making jokes. I have to say, I didn't witness the event, but I heard that Dave, completely sober, <clears throat> lapped all the other guys and eventually picked quite a few of them up and brought them across the finishing line. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that to be a follower of Christ at all. <laughs> but you know what? Dave won a hearing for the gospel. And the next term, he organized whole curry evening and he paid for the whole hockey club that's three girls teams three boys teams and he invited a speaker in from Christians in sports to speak about the hope that we have in Christ and as a result of that they ran a Christian explore course and opened Mark's gospel with these guys he won a hearing for the gospel be wise in the way you act towards outsiders Make the most of every opportunity. How can you win a hearing for the gospel? I know many people here, I look around and I can see many people I humbly admire and respect because I know you're doing that in your workplace. 
Live your life. Let's live our lives to win a hearing. And so remember how you quietly live out your life at work or at home in your family. It's never wasted in God's economy. Those little random acts of kindness or speaking well of colleagues or not lying to your boss or keeping your word or being completely above reproach at the office Christmas party, none of that is wasted in God's economy. It'll all win a hearing for the message. So we make the most of every opportunity. Remember, we pray, we proclaim, and then we're prepared. There's something wonderfully liberating about this passage, isn't there? Yes, there's a responsibility to proclaim the message of Christ, but only when God opens that door. And yes, we're to make the most of every opportunity, but when it comes our way, we're prepared. Now, you might be thinking, MJ, I really don't have many opportunities to speak about Christ. Well, let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed for one? When was the last time as a body of believers or as a home group or as a prayer triplet or as a a couple, if you're married to a Christian, that you prayed for the Lord to open a door for one another and that you'd make the most of the opportunity given to you? I find that it's one of the prayers that the Lord loves to answer. (laughs) Please give me an opportunity to speak about you. He loves to answer that. People will ask. God will open doors. You are the light of the world. Are you ready? Are you on your knees? And rather than a mandate to bring Jesus Christ up at the coffee machine the next time you go for a break, Paul says, remember, pray. Ask God to open the door. Be wise how you act. The world is watching. Make the most of every opportunity. In other words, respond to his nudges. Um, I wrote lots of things down here which I don't have time to go into, so I'd love to encourage you to come along to our evening sessions on sharing your faith to explore what does it look like to respond to God's nudges. But ask the Lord, Lord, help me to respond to your nudges. Because verse 6, Paul writes, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul presupposes that we're having conversations with people all the time. It's not a one-way street. It's not like, right, I'm going to switch into gospel gear now, and here we go. I've got a captive audience, although you're a very captive audience. Wonderful. But most of the time, we don't have this opportunity, do we? We're in conversation. And this dialogue has two qualities. Notice it, verse 6. It's to be full of grace, this conversation. In other words, we're to be gracious, respectful how we speak, but also pointing to the one who is full of grace, to Jesus Christ. And do you also notice the other quality that conversation is meant to have? Seasoned with salt. We want salty conversations. In other words, to have a potency and a bite to it, to make people thirsty. And it's all so that we may know how to answer everyone. Are we ready? Are we prepared? We pray, we proclaim, and we're prepared. And I'm just going to finish with a personal story of a friend of mine who's given me permission to share this with you. I've been praying for the last year or so with some other mums from school. Um, just a few of us, three or four of us, on a Thursday morning at our home. And we've been praying for our boys' 
secular local primary school for the teachers, for the students, for the other parents. And one of the parents that we felt prompted to pray for, I, I didn't know her name actually, she had very colorful hair, big personality, big character, often be shouting at her son on the way to school to hurry up and get moving, as we often do as parents. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes in her life. But we'd been praying for her. We'd been praying that God would break into her life and that she would know that he has a great plan and a purpose for her. And a few months ago, I was in the park opposite school with the boys all playing. She was there and she was chatting to another mum. She said, I'm at a crossroads in my life. I don't know whether to go through this decision or not. I'm 38, I might not get another opportunity to. Everyone else doesn't think I should go ahead with it. Um, but I don't know what to do. And I got tingles down my spine. I thought, Lord, what is going on here? And so I sort of joined in the conversation. I said, it sounds like you're making a fairly life-changing decision, or major decision. She said, yes, I am. I said, are you pregnant? She said, I am. And she just had this scan. It was an unplanned pregnancy with an abusive ex-partner. And she was considering terminating. And this other mum said, it's the 21st century. You can do with your body what you want. What would the rest of your family say? And she said, my family would say, don't keep it. And then the, mum, the other mum turned to me and she said, well, you've got three kids. You know what it's like. What would you say? And I said, well, I've just had two miscarriages, actually. And I believe every, every child is a gift. And whatever rubbish or mess we're going through in our own lives, we shouldn't put the blame on that little one. And I asked if she had any pictures of the scan. She said, no, the baby was too wriggly. We couldn't take any pictures, but I've got the um, details of the kind of growth charts and everything. So I looked at it with her. And in the meantime, I was praying under my breath that this other mum would leave because I thought she was toxic to the conversation. And she did. She went off to see to her child. And I said to her, her name's Julie. I said, Julie, you don't know me, but there's a group of us mums. I'm a Christian. I'm married to a vicar. And we've been praying for the school and for you, we've been praying that God would break into your life and that you'd know that he has a great plan for you and that he loves you and has a purpose for you. She started welling up and crying. She said, oh, I've, no one's ever spoken to me like that before. And I suddenly remembered the gate and I told her about the crisis pregnancy center that was born out of this church. And the Lord just opened a door for the message to come in and as a church family and this is not me at all but the church family has been amazing i brought her to a women's brunch here and i introduced her. i said this is ellie she's got an iron for you and this is kate she's got a microwave and this is grace she's got bed linen for you and this is jan fen and she's got pots and pans for you she then came to the Easter services at church, the Good Friday service. She said, normally I'd be hung over on a Good Friday because it's a bank holiday. It's the first time I've been up and dressed. And she came and her son, who's five, came and we finished the Good Friday drama with Jesus being put in the tomb. And Guy came up and said, if you want to find out what happens to him, you've got to come back in a few days on Sunday. And Shay, who's five, said, what happens? What happens? He'd never heard the story. 
few weeks ago, she got keys for a flat from the council, a two-bedroom flat, and the body of Christ here has again been wonderful, and she is so grateful. So I want to pass on. She told me to say thank you this morning. For a few weeks, she didn't come to church or come to our prayer group, and her 15-year-old son said, Mum, you should go back to church because life is much better when you do. She's very much a work in progress, as we all are. She still hasn't accepted the good news, but I, every opportunity I get, I tell her, don't rely on yourself. Don't try and be strong, because you're not. I'm not strong. The only one who's strong is Jesus Christ. He's the only rock you can depend on. Well, just over a week ago, she had the baby. She's back in her home. We've, as a church, we've managed to raise the funds to put flooring down because there's just concrete floors and we've got sofas and washing machine and fridge freezers and cookers all gratefully received from your generous donations. So let's pray for her and for many others in our lives that I'm sure as a team if we devote ourselves to prayer and as a team we shine for him that we don't shine, hide our light under a bowl but together the body of Christ shining out for the world to see so that we may know how to answer everyone. Amen.